Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeologic artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last episode, we surveyed the Jewish diaspora. We watched Jews thrive in Sassanid Babylonia, ultimately partnering with the Persians to take on the Romans and winning back Jerusalem as spoils of war. In the Iberian Peninsula, we saw the Visigoths conquer, convert to Christianity, and begin their persecution of the Jews there. We saw new Jewish communities spring up in North and East Africa, and saw Jewish traders flourish in the Hejaz. Then, we looked at Muhammad's slow rise to power, including his conflict with the surrounding Jewish population and the rapid expansion of his Muslim empire. And, in the face of this new empire, we saw Jews initially protected under the constitution of Medina and then subsequently subjugated under the Pact of Umar. This week, we will explore Jewish life in the new Muslim world, with all of its beauty, power, and hardship. But before we begin, I'd love to get to know you, my listeners, a little bit better. So drop me a line at jewishstorypod at gmail.com. That's jewishstorypod at gmail.com. By the year 750 CE, subsequent caliphs had massively expanded the Muslim empire to include the entire Iberian and Arabian peninsulas, all of North Africa, southern Turkey, and as far east as India and Pakistan. This vast expansion of Muslim territory had a profound impact on the Jews living within it and revolutionized the way Judaism was organized and practiced. Much of what we know of this era of Jewish history comes from the historic Geniza Archive, a massive collection of written material found in the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Fustat, Egypt. The archive contains all sorts of writings, including ancient books, government documents, legal contracts, and letters written between common people. Because the archive was found in Fustat, much of its information pertains to Jews living in Muslim-controlled Egypt, but there are entries from the wider world within it as well. When reading through documents from the Geniza archive, one is immediately overrun with documents describing the working lives of Jews in the early Muslim empire. Jews took up a variety of jobs during this period, as pharmacists, makers of perfume, creators of candy and sweets, metal, leather, and glass workers, importers, exporters, and jewelers. But perhaps the two most popular occupations for Jews at this time seem to have been in the manufacturing of clothing and in long-distance trade. Jews were heavily ingrained in every part of the clothes-making process. They spun cloth from the wool of animals, weaved it into fine fabric, dyed it all colors of the rainbow, and distributed it to the local people. This unprecedented access to clothing manufacturing gave Jews the opportunity to dress with some flair, especially since, during the early 10th century, the requirements of special dress set out in the Pact of Umar did not seem to be enforced very strictly. In contrast to the solemn blacks and grays worn by Jews in Jerusalem, Egyptian Jews wore silks and linens of all sorts of bright colors, particularly on special occasions. Jewish women, just like their Muslim counterparts, wore veils out in public, and when a Jewish woman married, it was not uncommon for her to spend up to 40% of her dowry on a wedding dress. The other major occupation of the Jews was long-distance trade. There were three major trade routes at the time in the Muslim world. 
The first ran west from Arabia, both northwest into Sicily, France, and Spain, and southwest into Tunisia and Morocco. The second ran northeast into Syria, Palestine, and onto Iraq and Iran, eventually connecting with the Silk Road from the Far East. The third major route ran southeast, down the Red Sea, and across the Indian Ocean to the coastline of India, where many spices and gold were collected. Jewish families involved in trading would send members of their extended family, and sometimes slaves, down along various routes in order to collect taxes on their goods and to make sure that the cargo got to its intended destination unharmed. But trading was a tricky and dangerous business. Firstly, there were the bandits that waited along major trade routes to rob traders of their wares. On top of that, there was a rule in the Muslim empire that if a Jew wished to make a large financial transaction, it had to go through a third-party broker and could not be exchanged directly. This understandably made trading a challenge, but the Jews found a loophole. They developed networks of credit along each of their trade routes, using small pieces of paper with written sums on them, essentially an early form of check, to facilitate their business. Trading was not easy at the best of times, but was particularly hard on families whose loved ones spent significant amounts of time on the road. The trade routes were long and treacherous, and there was limited means of communication, which caused much worry on the part of those who remained at home. In fact, things occasionally got to the point where a husband or wife had to consider whether to seek formal permission of the Jewish court to remarry, or whether to wait it out until their spouse returned home. One particularly poignant letter from the Geniza is written from a mother to her son, who says, quote, You seem to be unaware that when I get a letter from you, it is a substitute for seeing your face. You don't realize my very life depends on getting news about you. Do not kill me before my time, unquote. Jewish maternal guilt clearly has deep roots. The Geniza archive is also rich with letters describing the leisure activities of 10th century Egyptian Jews. Shabbat was always a lively time, with frequent games of dice and pigeon races along the rooftops of the synagogue. During the week, Jews would visit local bathhouses and would attend famous parties where the alcohol flowed, both Muslims and Jews were in attendance, and would take turns reciting poetry. There were, of course, local feasts and carnivals, and a good deal of adventure, too. Jewish letters from the archive tell of shipwrecks, caravans lost to marauders and bandits, and Jews being kidnapped and held for ransom. The archive is also full of documents allowing us to glimpse the lives of strong Jewish women. Now, of course, strong Jewish women undoubtedly formed a core of Jewish society for millennia, but before the 10th century, we have limited historical evidence of these matriarchs, probably a reflection of the overall status of women at the time. But from the Geniza archive, suddenly, stories of strong Jewish women begin to emerge in full force. Most women of the day were illiterate since, unlike the boys, they were never taught to read, but they still found ways to communicate by the written word. The more wealthy could afford to hire scribes to transcribe letters for them, and some women took up work as school teachers, many of whom were literate and could write their own letters. Jewish women of the day were also active in the workforce, most commonly working as embroiderers or weavers to supplement the family income. And women who had the while and skills would sometimes cut their teeth as brokers, 
advertising goods in the market, which could lead to remarkable wealth and success. One of the most frequently mentioned women in the Geniza archive was one of these brokers. Her name was Karima, but in business, she was known as Al-Wusha. She came from a family of bankers, and both through family wealth and as a result of her own earnings, she became very wealthy, attaining a fortune of 700 dinars, roughly $170,000 Canadian in today's currency. When it came to Jewish practice, Jews in Muslim-controlled Egypt were by no means uniform. In Fustat alone, there were three distinct Jewish communities, those of Babylonian, Palestinian, and Karaite persuasion. Each group had their own synagogues in which they developed their own styles of Torah reading and prayer. In the Babylonian shuls, psalms were chanted by a cantor, whereas in Palestinian shuls, choirs of chorus boys would perform, and the Torah scrolls were ornately displayed. The two communities also had different Torah reading cycles. The Palestinians read the Torah over a three-year cycle, whereas the Babylonians read it over one year, like we do today. As for the Karaites, their prayer more closely resembled the Muslim style. They removed their shoes before praying, and their services were punctuated by the congregants bowing deeply. But no matter which group you belong to, the shul continued to serve its usual functions, as a place of prayer, a school for both girls and boys, a hostel for Jewish travelers, and a court which sat in session twice a week. It was by this point that men and women began to be separated in shul, with women being seated in a wooden gallery behind a carved screen to avoid the mind wandering to thoughts of the opposite sex. Despite this relatively fruitful existence, however, Jews were still considered dimi, second-class citizens, and they were reminded of it yearly when it was time for them to pay jaliya, a tax imposed upon Jews and Christians as a condition of retaining protection from the Muslim empire. The jaliya came along with specific rules that were meant to humiliate and reinforce Jews' second-class status. Tax collectors purposefully kept the Jewish payers waiting and would shout at them and hit them during the process of payment. Particularly for the poorer Jews of the empire, the tax was a significant financial hardship. In earlier times, Jews who were down on their luck had been exempt from the tax, but by the 11th century, there were no longer any exceptions. If the jaliya was not paid, there were a multitude of severe consequences. First off, travel throughout the empire would be significantly restricted. In order for Jews to travel, they had to carry with them proof that they had paid the jaliya in the form of a tax receipt, called a bara'a. If a Jew was stopped by a Muslim tax agent and found to be without their bara'a, they would be thrown in jail for months on end, with minimal food and frequent beatings. It was not uncommon for Jews locked up in this way to die in prison. And, if they attempted to make a run for it, not only would they be fugitives for life, but their debt would simply be transferred on to their family members. We actually have a piece of a letter in the Geniza archive from one such Jew, on the run from Muslim tax collectors. In his letter, he says, quote, Marked by illness, infirmity, want, and excessive fear, since I am sought out by the controller of revenue who is hard on me, seeks out runners to track me down, and, I am afraid, will find my hiding place. If I fall into their hands, I shall die under their beating, or will have to go to prison and die there. Unquote. 
With much of the Jewish world under the control of the Muslim empire, the type of life Jews could lead was heavily dependent on who the caliph was at the time. Some were actually quite tolerant of Jews, while others, not so much. In the early 11th century, Caliph Hakim bin Amr Allah ordered that Jews must wear only black and, when they removed their clothes to bathe in public bathhouses, must wear cattle collars with bells around their necks to mark their Jewish identity. Christians, too, had to wear a large metal cross, and both churches and synagogues were ordered to be destroyed. But Jews in the new Muslim world were not totally defenseless. Just as had been the case in Sassanid Persia in the 6th to 8th centuries, the Jewish exilarch was the formal representative of the Jews to the Muslim caliphs. The exilarch would issue orders to, and receive feedback from, the heads of the three most prominent yeshivot in the world, the Jerusalem yeshiva and the Babylonian yeshivot of Pumbedita and Sura. These yeshiva leaders, who functioned as sort of vice-exilarchs, were known as the Geonim, Hebrew for pride of the community, and had tremendous respect and religious power. One of the most prominent roles of the Geonim was to conduct the Jewish high courts, which would receive religious questions from Jewish communities across the Muslim empire, and would draft formal responses, called teshuvot, which they would then publicize during biannual kala conventions. The yeshivot would receive financial support from the Jewish communities as well, and the exilarch and geonim could champion local leaders in farther-off communities, giving them significant and wide-reaching influence. Despite their significant political and religious power, the exilarch and geonim were not universally accepted. They had a reputation for strictness and inflexibility, and over time this led to challenges to their leadership. In the 8th century, a man named Anan ben David, who was part of an important family but had been passed over for the position of exilarch, broke off from the mainstream and founded his own cultural group. Ben David's movement rejected the authority of the rabbis, believing that their proclamations were man-made and not necessarily aligned with the will of God. By the 9th century, this group had attracted a fair number of members, who became known as the Karaites. Similar to the Sadducees centuries earlier, the Karaites urged a return to strict adherence to the Torah and believed that all Jews must return to historic Judea in order to bring about the coming of the Messiah. Over time, the Karaites continued to spread through northwestern Africa and into Spain. In response to the religious challenge by the Karaites, the Geonim doubled down on their rabbinic law and began to issue handbooks which clarified and entrenched the rabbinic positions on various topics of Jewish law. These handbooks included works such as the Halachot Gedolot, Sidur Rav Amram Gaon, and She'el Tot. The conflict between the Karaites and the Rabbinate also ultimately led to the creation of the first Torah tropes, or melodies, in Babylon and Tiberias in the 9th and 10th centuries. But challenges to conventional Jewish leadership sometimes came from within. In 916 CE, the Babylonian exilarch, David ben Zakkai, was looking to appoint the next Gaon of the yeshiva at Sura. Tradition of the time was that the Gaon would be chosen from an elite family, typically one heavily involved in the yeshiva. But Zakkai, in a rogue move, chose a man named Sa'adia ben Yosef, an Egyptian-born Jew 
to fill the role. Sadia didn't come from a particularly elite background, but he was extremely accomplished as a Jewish scholar, and became somewhat of a star after writing a rhyming Hebrew dictionary, modeled after Arabic-style poetry. He was also well-known as a very outspoken man, and wasn't afraid of getting in hot water with powerful people when he said something they didn't approve of. Perhaps the most famous example of this character trait was a dust-up he had with a prominent Jerusalemite rabbi, Aaron ben Meir. The background of this conflict all had to do with the Jewish calendar, in which, prior to the turn of the first millennium, every month was set to begin on the day after the full moon. Each Jewish town would post sentries on hilltops, who would gaze at the sky waiting for the full moon's arrival. The first sentry to glimpse it would light a fire on his hilltop, which could then be seen by neighboring communities and would alert them of the new month's beginning. These neighboring communities would in turn light fires of their own, thus spreading news of the new month's arrival to every Jewish community in the Middle East. The reason this calendrical system was so crucial was because of the significance of dates in Jewish observance and the importance that the entire Jewish people be on the same page about when holidays were to be celebrated. But in the first and second centuries, the Jews were heavily embroiled in conflict with the Samaritans, and the Samaritans decided to light their own fires in order to confuse the Jews and prevent them from knowing when the new month was to begin. This Samaritan interference had become such a problem in Jewish society that by the 4th century, a fixed calendar was set, based on mathematics and astronomical tables, to remove the need for fire signals altogether. Fast forward to 921 CE, and Rabbi Aaron ben Meir declared that he wanted to do away with this mathematical calendar and go back to the old system of centuries on hilltops. But there was a problem. Changing systems would mean that that year's Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, would end up falling on a Tuesday instead of a Thursday, which would in turn throw off all the other Jewish holidays. Enter Saadia ben Yosef, who pointed out this issue and strongly argued against Ben Meir's proposal. The whole Jewish community quickly became embroiled in the debate, and eventually enough people sided with Saadia that Meir's proposal was thrown out. This religious victory gained Saadia a good deal of popularity, leading to his appointment first as Gaon of Pumbedita, and then later his appointment to Sura by David ben Zakai. But it didn't take long before the outspoken Saadia got into it with Zakai. The scuffle took place over a will that had been placed in probate, a will in which Zakai stood to inherit a significant sum of money. Saadia, who, as Gaon, was responsible for ruling on questions of Jewish law, ruled against Zakai's claim to the inheritance, upsetting the exilarch. As retribution, Zakai fired Saadia in a huff, and in response, Saadia tried to fire Zakai right back. The two were essentially arm-wrestling for power to decide who would be the true leader of the Jews. Ultimately, the two caused such a ruckus that the Muslim authorities had to step in, demanding an end to the quarrel. Saadia ultimately resigned, leaving Zakai as exilarch. After this conflict, Saadia began a writing career, which actually had a large influence on the surrounding Jewish culture. One of his major projects was decentralizing the sacred Jewish texts by translating them into Aramaic and Arabic, languages more commonly spoken at the time. These translations made rabbinic understanding of Jewish law widely available 
and understandable to the masses of Jews who didn't speak Hebrew. He also wrote multiple books that combined Muslim and Greek philosophy with traditional Jewish knowledge, weaving together cultures in a brand new way. During the next several centuries of Muslim rule, there were three big changes that revolutionized the way information was spread throughout the empire. The first was the invention of paper, a new technology of the time, which was quickly spreading throughout the world. In the initial decades after its invention, paper was being produced in Iraq and Syria, and then shipped to surrounding areas. But by the 10th century, the price of Syrian-produced paper had become so high that it was cheaper for Egypt and other provinces of the Muslim empire to just begin manufacturing it on their own. By the 11th century, paper and ink made from carbon or gall had become widely available throughout the Muslim empire. Paper's ubiquity meant that, for essentially the first time in human history, messages could be rapidly sent over long distances, and long texts could be preserved and reproduced much more easily. The second big development was a huge push by the Muslim empire to amass knowledge from all different walks of life, Persian, Greek, Roman, Arabian, and to translate it all into Arabic creating a vast repository of easily accessible philosophical and scientific knowledge. This led to some great discoveries, including the invention of algebra, the beginnings of trigonometry, and various important medical insights, including initial theories of how the human eye perceived light. The final development was a change to the system of taxation within the Muslim empire. Instead of a fixed tax rate for each person, or basing tax brackets off of income, like we do today, the Muslims set up a new tax called the Qaraj, whereby a fixed rate was set for each tract of land. Whoever was living there was responsible for paying its tax, and this set up an incentive for people to live closer to one another. More people closer together meant lower tax rate per capita. This seemingly inconsequential change meant that for inhabitants of the Muslim empire, Living in a dense urban area was much cheaper than living rurally as a farmer or pastoralist, and this prompted a wave of urbanization. The sheer size of the Muslim empire also meant that travel was relatively unrestricted, which made interregional trade much easier, enhancing knowledge transfer both between far-off Jewish communities as well as non-Jewish peoples. With these three developments, this period in history became a renaissance of information philosophy, and science, and it was making its mark on Jewish life. The wave of urbanization and sudden access to more secular forms of knowledge led to the creation of several new and more secular movements in Judaism. One movement, called Latitudinarianism, emphasized the importance of being flexible and tolerant of deviations from strict Orthodox belief. And a similar movement, called Antinomianism, rejected the idea of an omniscient and all-powerful God altogether. With these movements, new criticisms were leveled against traditional Jewish learning institutions, like day schools and yeshivot, and new, more secular Jewish texts began to be written. All in all, Jewish life in 10th century Muslim empire was vibrant, exciting, and sometimes dangerous. Various branches of Judaism were finding their own traditions and styles. Jews had rich traditions in various professions, including trade and textiles, among others. And on a person-to-person -person level, they often mingled with their Muslim neighbors. 
However, they were still regarded as second class by the Muslim Caliphate, who demanded harsh taxation and restricted their movements. Within Jewish organizational structure, the Exilarchs and Geonim represented their people to the Muslim government, with much bickering and infighting between them. There was a vast tradition of literacy and academia as well, spearheaded by the yeshivot and supplemented by influential Jewish writers like Saadia ben Yosef. But there were Jews living beyond the Muslim empire, Jews that, until the mid-10th century, remained somewhat of a mystery. And we will meet them next time on The Jewish Story.